For me, I hope the same for you. One of the most comforting truths is that we have a merciful Savior. God is merciful. I often think of mercy as, as God uh, not giving us what, I, what we deserve, not giving me what I deserve. I, I need mercy. You need mercy because we're all guilty. We have a guilty conscience. We've broken God's law. And we stand condemned because of that. We, we, we know we failed to live even up to our own standards, let alone God's standards, which, of course, are way above ours. And so we're sinners. Everybody's a sinner, the Bible says. And uh, we fall short of God's glory. The Bible even says our, our, even our own hearts condemn us. And so it's very comforting to know we have a merciful Savior. But just as much as we need a merciful Savior... We also need a sovereign Lord. We need a sovereign Lord. I mean, just think about this. If, if Christ is merciful to you, but Christ is not sovereign, then He's not able to, to rule over the forces that threaten you. I mean, what, what good is His mercy going to be to you if He is not in control and He's not supreme and, and sovereign over everything that's happening to you? The reality is our lives are fragile and vulnerable. Your life is fragile. I mean, you, you, your life could be, could be taken from you at any moment to, very easily. I've had many friends die over the years from various things like brain aneurysms. All of a sudden, you know, you know a friend falls on the ground and he's dead. Didn't know anything was wrong. I mean, that's, that's just how fragile and vulnerable we are. We see this being, you know, worked out all over our world. I mean, just, just think about this for a moment. What will happen in Iraq, right? I mean, it's been all over the news recently. Uh, some have been asking the question, you know, will all the Christians be killed by uh, ISIS, uh, the, the Islamic State? You know, what, the other thing that's been in the news is what's going to happen, you know, between Israel and the Palestinians, some have asked, you know, when's the next 9-11 going to come? You know, this, this, the worldwide terrorism is, is a concern to a lot of people. You know? But for, for others, you know, like, like our brother here and, and others that we know of, you know, the, their concern is their health at the moment. You know, it's great to know that God is merciful, but if He's not sovereign, you know, if He's, he's not sovereign over my health, what does it really matter, some would say? Or maybe it's not your health, but maybe maybe it's the concern of the health of your children or your grandchildren, or maybe it's your spouse or your parents. You're you're concerned about them. For others, it's hey, there's all kinds of natural disasters that have have befallen our world and will continue on. You know, some some would say, hey, could could the next great earthquake happen where I live, or uh, you know, a tsunami or you know, a volcano, or who knows, all these various things are going on around the world, and it, it, it seems like the, these natural disasters are growing worse and worse and more and more. And so we, we look at these, and, and hopefully, hopefully, it, it causes us to realize that really life is fragile and we're vulnerable. And so if you're honest, you know you can't protect yourself from everything. I mean, we try to go to the doctor, we try to eat healthy and get rest and exercise and, and do all these various things to protect ourselves, but we are still vulnerable and fragile. And so what you need then is someone who is always good and always great. In other words, we need a sovereign Lord over this world. 
But not just over this world. We need a sovereign Lord over the, the, the details of our lives. Even, even down to the very genes and the DNA and the, the microbes and all the various things going on even within our bodies. We need one who is ruling over the various states and the terrorist. Iraq and Israel and the Palestinians. We, we need a, a sovereign Lord who reigns supreme over disease and disaster and even the so-called accidents that happen in your life. We need someone who is sovereign over the very various details of our lives. And I'm comforted to know as we come to a text like this today that we see in the pages of Scripture a sovereign Lord. By sovereign Lord, I mean one who rules and reigns supreme over all of His creation. The one who is in control. And that leads me to to again, the same theme we had last week is this, that King Jesus is sovereign. And for me, I can't find a greater, more comforting truth in all of the Scriptures that King Jesus is sovereign over even the minute details of my life. And over and over again in Matthew 26, we're seeing this, this theme just jumping off the page. Let me just highlight a few things in our text today for you. Verses 31 to 35, we see Jesus' sovereignty is seen here as he's predicting the failure of his disciples. He's predicting the failure of his disciples. He knows what's, what's going to happen to these guys. In fact, look, look what he says starting here in verse 31. Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, that's his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let me just highlight a few things here for you to help you to understand, to, to see that King Jesus truly is sovereign. But notice, first of all, Jesus, his statement here, he says clearly, they, the disciples, will all fall away. Now, how did he know that? I mean, he, he's saying that before it actually happened. Well, it's because he's sovereign. He knows. Interesting phrase, though, there. Jesus uses that, that phrase, fall away, is, is from the Greek word scandalizo. Sound like an English word you might know? We get an English word called scandal from that. Uh, but uh, this Greek word means cause to sin or make to stumble. These guys are going to stumble. They're going to flee and and uh, it's showing us that it's not just Judas who's, who's going to fail here. Jesus is, is expanding his prediction here to you all. He clearly says, you all, which must have come as a shock to these guys, must have shocked them to the very core of their being. I mean, the disciples are going to desert Jesus completely. They're going to they're run off here in just a moment. And even when Jesus appears to them on the first night of his resurrection, you know, you know what they're doing? Do you remember what the Bible says? 
even after Jesus arises, comes out of the grave, they're still cowarding behind closed doors. Jesus had to walk through the door. The Bible says it was closed. He comes, he comes in. They're, they're still cowarding. Now why? Well, Jesus says, why are they going to do this? Well, Jesus says so. He says they're going to perceive that following him is dangerous. Did you notice what Jesus said? They're going to do this on his account for me. And so they're going to run for their lives because they're going to perceive that following Jesus is dangerous. It's interesting. It says Jesus sees the disciples falling away here as a part. Uh, it, it's, it's God's will that was actually foretold by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 13. So, so Matthew's uh, well, sorry, Jesus is looking back to Zechariah chapter 13. He's quoting the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years before. And so he's recognizing, hey, that was a prophecy about me. And by the way, this doesn't mean that these guys are innocent for what they're about to do to Jesus, okay? They're clearly guilty. They are res- totally responsible for their, for, for their, what they do to Jesus as they run away from him. But it also means that God has planned for this ahead of time. He talks about it in, in the Old Testament. He's in sovereign control, even of their future. What's the point of Zechariah, by the way? What's the point of Zechariah? Well, you'll, you'll see an allusion or a point here in verse 31. Verse 31, Jesus talks about it at the end of verse 31. He says, it is written. When Jesus says that, he's talking about the Old Testament. It is written, I will strike the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Well, Jesus is talking about himself. He's the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And then he goes on, he says, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Who's that? He's talking about the, the sheep here are his disciples. They're going to be scattered. And so, so the true shepherd of Israel is going to be struck. He's going to be killed. And then the, the disciples are going to scatter and and, and there's this, this imagery that Jesus is using here that Israel is in apostasy. And so Zechariah is centering on the apostasy of the nation in deserting God. And the disciples, what they're doing is they're, they're, it's like they're reenacting the falling away of Israel. Well, that's bad news. So let me give you some good news. In verse 32, Jesus gives a post-resurrection promise. He gives a post-resurrection promise in verse 32. He, he says, after I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Some good news for, you know, after he's just said, you're going to fall away. He's saying he's going to reunite with them in Galilee. Remember, Galilee's up in the north, the northern regions of Israel. There, they're going to find forgiveness. Yes, you guys are going to fall away, but I'm going to forgive you. We're going to be reunited, and you'll be reinstated. So therefore, Galilee's, think of it this way, it's a place of revelation where Jesus is going to meet with his disciples. He's going to give them victory over their failures. And in fact, that's the way Matthew ends. He actually ends in chapter 28. You can look at it for yourself. Matthew 28, verse 16. Jesus knows what he's talking about here. See, look at Matthew 28, 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that's a little look forward. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. Then Jesus says that Peter is going to deny him. Peter's, you know, a typical Peter, he's displaying his uh, typical false boldness again, yet again, sticking foot in his mouth. He's quite impulsive. He's declaring with absolute confidence that, oh, I would never do that to you, Jesus. Yet Jesus knows the truth, doesn't he? Why does he know the truth? Because he's sovereign. He's in control. Jesus knows that Peter will not just fail. In fact, Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. Again, how does he know that? (laughs) He's sovereign. He had supernatural knowledge of what Peter would do. By the way, we're not going to look at it today, but uh, just a, a few verses farther on in Matthew, Matthew mentions where Peter actually denies Jesus the three times. So we'll look at that maybe next week. But let me prepare you for the next scene. Because as I've been meditating on the scripture, I'm, I find myself a little shocked by this next scene. The Garden of, of Gethsemane is just one of the, the, the surprises of scripture. We see a change in Jesus that is abrupt. It's, it's distinct. It's, it may actually shock you to your very soul. And I say that because now we've been going through Matthew, and for 25 chapters in Matthew, we've seen a man who is authoritative. We see a man who is assured. He's absolutely fearless. He's a man on a mission. The king is steady. He's in control of everything. But now we come here. We're going to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see him radically changed from what we've seen from the first 25 chapters. Suddenly we're encountering a Savior that, frankly, we're unfamiliar with. And so my warning to you is this. What you're about to observe here is frightening. And frankly, it should be frightening. Because what we're about to see is someone who is who who knows his mission. He knows, again, this shows his sovereignty. He knows what he's going to receive particularly from his heavenly Father. And it's frightening. Let's have a read. And as we read, remember, we're, we're seeing Jesus' sovereignty displayed here in Gethsemane. So let's, let's start in verse 36. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And take it with him, Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I hope you can just see Jesus' sovereignty jumping off the page here. Uh, There's three different prayers and, and interactions with the disciples we want to take a look at here. You'll see the I've given you a little map on the screen here. You, uh, hopefully you can see that good enough. You'll know where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And so Jesus has, has taken his disciples here to this garden. The Bible says Jesus took his disciples uh, uh, out the one of those eastern gates, and he went to this olive grove that was on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem. This, uh, as far as we know, was probably an olive orchard owned by some wealthy supporter who... Uh, who allowed Jesus to use it. According to John, John says that Ju- Judas knew of this place, he, and he knew it because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Luke says that Jesus and the others spent the nights there during the Passion Week. So if, if you look at verse 37 in your Bible, we see the, the depth of Jesus' emotions. He, he's kind of kept these things under wraps, hasn't he, throughout the book of Matthew? He's, he's kept them under control until now, and it's like he's, he's unloading this emotion. He, he knows that his, uh, what his destiny is. He, he's come for this very purpose. And, and it, it even says it in Matthew chapter 1, right? He came to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. He knew, he knew that before he even came. We're seeing the God-man, the, the, the one who is God and man, two natures in one person forever. He, and, and we see, one of the things we see here is his humanity, don't we? His emotions are coming out. He's feeling this dread, and this dread's just overwhelming him, like a heavy blanket that's just crushing him. By the way, it needs to be noted here that the anguish that Jesus is feeling has has really nothing to do with his the suffering of, of the death. The, the physical death that he's about to suffer is not while he is that's not why he's feeling this anguish. He knows he's going to bear the sins of humanity, and as a result of this, he's going to be separated from his heavenly father, and that's what's really bothering him. And so in this text, there's two particular words that are showing the horror that Jesus feels here. Have a look at this. The word sorrowful, it means a state of sadness, a deep state of sadness. That's what Jesus has entered into here. The word troubled means to be full of heaviness. In fact, uh, as I was studying this, this particular word here for troubled is the worst uh, Greek word for depression. The, the Greeks had three words for depression, and this is the, the worst out of all three of them. So Jesus has entered into serious, critical depression as a result of what he's 
what he's going to experience from his separation from his father as he bears the sin of the world. In verse 38, Jesus becomes the righteous sufferer of the Psalms. And, and you'll see in verse 38 there, it's, it's like an allusion to Psalm 42 and 43, where it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? By the way, what's the, what's the solution in Psalm 42 and 43? The psalmist says, Hope in God. The psalmist preaches the gospel to himself. So both of those psalms, by the way, were reflecting trust in God during uh, times of great affliction. Yet Jesus intensifies the psalmist's distress here. He, he says, he says this anguish, this, this afflictions to the point of death. You say, well, what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus is saying it feels as if he's going to die. You ever felt that way? You ever literally felt like you're going to die? It's, that's the way Jesus is feeling here, which is, by the way, the, another one of the Gospels says Jesus was sweating like great drops of blood. Serious anguish going on. And so that statement there is showing great intensity of grief. And that's, and that's why he's, he's feeling this way. So anyway, in the midst of this ordeal, notice Jesus says he wants his friends to be with him. He's asking the three disciples here to remain with him. Of course, that's Peter... James, John, Jesus commands them to watch. That was a command. He's not asking them, by the way, hey, would you guys protect me while I go over here and pray? No, that's that's not the point. He's asking them to bear with him in prayer. Now, there's great significance. Uh, We could certainly make some uh, implication there from Jesus' statements showing the importance of prayer, showing the importance of community. Even the God-man is asking for other people to bear his burdens with him. And if the God-man asks ask that, how much more important than it is it for you and me that we bear one another's burdens and pray for one another in this life? We need community. It's not healthy for Christians to be isolated throughout the week. Right? You, if you just come on a Sunday or, or a Thursday, you know, meet with Christians on a Sunday or Thursday, and that's it, and then you're isolated from Christians the rest of the week, that's an unhealthy situation. Even Jesus, the God-man, knew that he wanted others to be involved in his life. In verse 39, we hear Jesus' prayer. This is interesting. He goes and he removes himself from the three disciples. He just goes a little ways away from them. Why Why did he do that, by the way? Jesus wanted to be alone with his father. He was able to commune, perfect fellowship with his father. His prayer shows the depth of his relationship with his father. Did you notice he even said, he calls him my father. That's a title of deep intimacy. It's also interesting what Jesus says when he says, if it be possible. You you could say it this way, since it is possible, but my translation says, if it be possible, and it's what it's doing is it's stressing the fact that God could actually do this. He could. But the end of the prayer shows it wasn't God's will. It wasn't God's will for Jesus to do anything other than go to the cross Some have asked, well, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about here? 
Well, the cup refers to God's wrath. Jesus had to bear God's wrath on your part. He was your substitutionary atonement. And that's, it's further evidence, by the way, when, when Jesus, you, you can just see he's conscious here of this vicarious nature of his death. He, he knows he's doing it not for his part, but he's doing it on our part. He's bearing God's wrath for sinners. He's not a sinner. And so Jesus' deep personal desire is for God to take away the necessity of the sacrifice, if it be possible, but of course it's not. Jesus is the only one. So his great desire then is, since it's not possible, his desire is for God's will to be accomplished. Clearly, Jesus is aware of the significance of his death then, isn't he? He's aware of his death. He's aware of the significance of his death. He knows he's going to accomplish God's plan for salvation. Look at verse 40. Because in verse 40, Jesus comes to his disciples and what are they doing? Are they... Are they doing what he wanted them to do? No, of course not. What are they doing? They're sleeping. <laughs> Can't blame them, really. They're, they're tired. It's late at night. It's dark. He told them to maintain this prayer vigilance with him, but they're not doing that. So when he returns, they're doing the exactly opposite, then, aren't they? Clearly, Jesus, he says, he's, it's, he's viewing them as spiritually weak. And so in verse 41, Jesus commands them again, keep watch and pray. Why? Why would he do that? Well, he says so. Because he says the flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. Their flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. So we, 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 need, we need God's enabling then, don't we? We need his grace. They needed that because their flesh was weak. In other words, they're lacking the personal strength to do what Jesus actually commanded them to do. And you know what? You and I are no different. We lack the strength to do what God wants us to do as well. We need to recognize that our flesh is weak. We need to pray. We need God's grace to accomplish His commands. Well, in verses 42 and 43, we see this second prayer, which some, if you're not looking and observing carefully, you might say, well, in verse 42, that's the same thing he just prayed in the first prayer. Well, it's not. Have a look at this. It's not exactly the same. Very, very similar. He's kind of restating his first prayer, but there is a very significant shift in his second prayer. Uh, We see Jesus coming to grips with his Father's will. He knows there is no other way. This is what he has to do. And so instead, what he does here, instead of kind of stating it, uh, Instead of the the positive statement, he states it negatively. If you look at verse 42, Jesus says, If this cannot pass, if this cannot pass, so clearly Jesus is recognizing the fact, hey, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer my father's wrath. He's going to, that's what propitiation means. He's the the sponge, if you will, of the father's wrath. I'm going to bear my father's wrath. I'm going to absorb it. He knows that. And so his only request then is, your will be done. If you look at verse 43, apparently Jesus, again, he's, he goes, he wakes up the disciples, they've fallen asleep again. Luke explains why they've fallen asleep, by the way. Matthew doesn't dig too much into this. But Luke, Luke says they were exhausted from sorrow. Apparently they began to realize the importance of what Jesus 
had been telling them. It's, it's starting to sink in. And so they, they're probably, they were probably weeping, according to Luke's words. And so if you've ever weeped for a while, you know it's just exhausting, especially when it's late at night. And so they fell asleep with exhaustion, apparently. But then there's a third prayer mentioned starting in verse 44. Verse 44 contains the word again, at least in my translation, says again. And that's showing a, there's, a, there's a third occasion, a third prayer, a third time where Jesus is interacting with his disciples. And again, he's kind of repeating similar concepts. And, and this, is, this is significant, by the way, because you have to understand something. In the ancient world, when you said or did something three times, it was showing that it was exceptional. It was showing that this was ultimate. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the Bible, it talks about that God is holy, holy, holy. You know why it says that? It's because God is ultimate holiness. God is exceptional holiness. there's nobody that even comes close to God's equal when it comes to being holy. He's totally unique from his creation. And and so in the ancient world, this meant something was ultimate. It was exceptional. So we have an example here where something's kind of repeated three times. What is this showing us? The point is this, that Jesus is becoming the ultimate model here for persevering prayer. And so when Jesus comes back to his disciples... He's disappointed and rebukes them. Why does he do that? Well, the disciples don't understand what's about to happen. Their flesh is weak. They don't fully understand. And so Jesus rebukes them. Verse 45 shows Jesus' destiny, by the way. It's it's arrived. It's finally here. It's finally here. It's beginning at this point. Jesus knows he's about to go off and meet his destiny. He, he knows because he, he even uses the words, the hour. Did you see that? He says that. The hour, and that means his time of destiny. The hour has begun. Jesus is soon to become the atoning sacrifice for mankind. He knows it. And so since the time has come for Jesus to meet his destiny, what does he do? Walks up to his disciples, wakes them up. He says, guys, let's go meet Judas. Well, he doesn't say Judas. What does he say? Let's go meet my betrayer. He knows his betrayer is coming. How does he know that? Because, again, Jesus is sovereign. He knows what's going on. So we see King Jesus in total control of this event. You know, There's other people who think they're in control, but not really. Jesus is in control. So let's have a look at this. Again, we'll see that Jesus is sovereign, and we see this in his arrest. Look at verse 47. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, he's speaking to his disciples. Here comes Judas. Judas came. He's one of the twelve. With him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. 
Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So We see Jesus' words being fulfilled there. In verse 56, Jesus' sovereignty is again seen in his arrests. And we see, first of all, that Jesus allows Judas to come and betray him. And I purposely use the word allow there because Jesus is in control. He could have stopped this. He said so. If he wanted, I could have stopped this. It's interesting, the crowd coming to arrest Jesus, they were sent by the the Jewish high council, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. By the way, this would have consisted of the temple guards along with the police. Notice it even says they're coming with swords and clubs. Uh, they're, they're ready for trouble if there is any. Uh, John tells us there was a company of Roman soldiers that was also accompanying them. Uh, they're, they're coming along to make sure that no riot's going to break out, that, that things are dealt with peacefully. Verse 48 says, Judas had given them a sign. Very interesting sign. Have a look at this. Because why did he pick this sign? Well, you have to understand, what time of day is this? It's, it's dark. It's, it's nighttime. How are they supposed to know who to arrest? Well, since Jesus needs to be arrested, they want Jesus arrested and it's dark time. It's, it's nighttime. The authorities didn't want someone else arrested. They wanted to arrest Jesus. And so this was the sign that Judas chose, the kiss. They paid Judas to identify Jesus. And by the way, again, did you notice Jesus, or, or did you notice what the, the sign that, that he chose is, is a kiss? It's very ironic that he would choose a kiss as, as, as a sign. It was a, it was a sign of greeting. It was a sign of affection. Okay, you may not use this particular greeting or affection. Uh, we, in our particular society, it's not as, it's not that common amongst ourselves, but in this society, they, they often did this sort of thing. In fact, here's what one commentator said. Have a look at this. Quote, it was not regular for disciples to kiss their rabbi. And it was a mark of special honor. And this makes Judas' choice especially heinous. End quote. And by the way, did you notice that, that he did call him rabbi? That meant teacher? Again, Judas is refusing to use the word Lord. He's not using the word Christ. He's not calling him Messiah. Uh, nowhere in Scripture is it mentioned that he ever called him that. He's using the word rabbi. By the way, how did Jesus respond to his betrayer? Have a look at this. Verse 50 says, Jesus called Judas friend. Friend? Really? (laughs) 
I mean, that word means that, that Judas is his companion. Judas is his comrade. And so even though Jesus knows what Judas is about to do, what Judas is doing, he's still showing acceptance and love to this man, even though he doesn't deserve it. So again, we see that Jesus knows what's happening. He has full knowledge of Judas' mission and purpose. And we know that because King Jesus is sovereign. Well, then Peter, again, (laughs) he doesn't stick his foot in his mouth so much, but he does use his hand. Verse 51, uh, well, Matthew doesn't actually mention Peter's name. He doesn't tell us who this guy is with the sword. John tells us, though, that is Peter. John tells us it's Peter, and 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 we, I, I would have to guess it was a fisherman and not a trained soldier doing this. Because notice what happens with the sword. The guy doesn't actually get killed, does he? Uh, it, it was really a bad shot. I mean, he cuts the guy's ear off. He, he, he may have been aiming for his head or his neck or somebody. He misses. He chops his ear off. But you can tell Peter was a fisherman. But what is Peter thinking here anyway? We've got this huge mob coming against them. And the Bible says they only had two swords amongst them. That's it. Just two swords. Nothing else. <laughs> and you got trained Roman soldiers. you got the temple guard and the police. They're all coming. And, and Peter takes out his sword. What are you thinking, Peter? Kind of funny when you think about it. Well, my conjecture is, is, is in agreement with this particular commentator. Have a look at this. I quote, Peter was thinking of Jesus as the conquering Messiah and believed that he swung the sword, the twelve legions of angels were going to appear and inaugurate the final battle. End quote. Well, that's Peter's response. What was Jesus' response? Well, you have to understand, how did Roman soldiers typically react to violence, to, to people uh, who, who would take out swords and attack someone else. Well, Rome was notorious for cutting down any resistance. And so Jesus, what does he do here? Again, he shows his full, total rule and control of the situation. He acts immediately before the soldiers retaliate against Peter. What does Jesus do? He does two things. He acts and he talks. Luke tells us that Jesus heals the man's ear. Matthew doesn't say that. So I, can't you just picture Jesus picking the guy's ear off the ground, sticking it back on the guy? It's like, wow, that would have been cool to see. Matthew tells us that in just one sentence here, Jesus has diffused a very dangerous situation. Could have been very easy for, for all of them to be wiped out right there and then. But if that had happened, that wouldn't have fulfilled the, the mission then, would it? And so again, Jesus takes control, shows his sovereignty over Rome and the temple police. So in three verses here, Jesus gives us three good reasons against violence. Let me just highlight them for you. In verse 52, we see that violence actually destroys those who employ it. Those who use violence are destroyed by it. That's Jesus' point in verse 52. So violence is not very helpful. And in verse 53, we see that God is able to protect. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you really believe that? If you believe that, then you're not going to show violence to your oppressors, to your persecutors, if you really believe that God is able to protect. Then in verse 54, at least in this case, we see Jesus recognizes his Father's will 
at least for him, includes suffering. Includes suffering. And that's often the case for us as well. Sometimes God's will includes suffering. So Jesus' teaching here is, is truly amazing, is it not? He's teaching that violence is improper, it's, it can be quite dangerous, and it always brings back on itself more violence. I'll give you an example. Uh, we see this happening in our world today when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians, don't we? Palestinians shoot off a rocket. What happens? Israel responds, more people die, right? So Palestinians shoot more rockets or kill some of their soldiers, you know, climb through the tunnels and pop up and shoot some soldiers, and what does Israel do? You know, they deal with them, right? It's this cycle of violence. And I'm not saying that Israel shouldn't defend themselves, but 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 we, we see how, how violence just brings more and more violence. And by the way, if Jesus was inaugurating this final holy war, well, he certainly didn't need Peter's help, did he? In fact, he says so here. He says, I don't need your help, Peter. I got this this heavenly host of angels at my disposal. I can call them down and, and just, just destroy these people if I want to. What is Jesus talking about here? He's, he's talking about an enormous army. Just, just bear with me. What does he say? I got 12 legions at my disposal. That's Roman talk. A legion contains 6,000 soldiers. So you, you do the math. 6 times 12. You come up with 72,000 Soldiers, 72,000 angels. And by the way, that's a minimum because Jesus says, I have more than that. I have more than 72,000 angels at my disposal. You just think about that for a moment because there was one angel that wiped out all the firstborn children in Egypt. That tenth plague, it only took one angel to to set God's people free. And he has over 72,000 at his disposal. But Jesus doesn't need them at this time because he's going to the cross to accomplish his Father's will. He knows he's going to become the sacrifice for sin. So even though he could have called the angels, he doesn't. Again, the whole emphasis here is on Jesus' sovereignty over the whole situation. And this reminds me of a song I really like. I'll just sing one verse for you. The song is called 10,000 Angels. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the streets in shame. They spat upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. He could have, but he didn't, did he? He knew what he was doing. Verse 54 says why Jesus did this. Jesus knew these events were actually fulfilling Scripture. So again, you see Jesus believes in Scripture. He knows it. He knows that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And you say, well, what what is he talking about there in verse 54? What, What Scriptures is he talking about? Well, he's talking about those Old Testament texts 
that speak of the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant. For example, Isaiah chapter 53. Let me just read a few of my favorite verses to you. It's on the screen here. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, uh, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So we see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah chapter 53 that talks of a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah. Well, this text ends with a closing remark from Jesus to the crowds. Very interesting. Why did they not arrest Jesus while he was in the temple? Jesus points that out to them. Hey, you guys, I've been with you in the temple several days now. Why didn't you arrest me there? (laughs) Well, remember, the authorities did want to arrest Jesus. As we read earlier in Matthew, though, they were actually afraid of his popularity. Remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus had ridden in, and the crowds were celebrating Jesus' arrival. And so they looked for a way to arrest Jesus privately. Now, why was this event happening? Well, look at verse 56. Again, we see the sovereign king is is pointing to the Scriptures. Did you see that? But all this has taken place, verse 56 says, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So again, Jesus highlighting this. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. They're about me. He knows his life and his work is fulfilled in those prophecies you see in the Old Testament. What about Jesus' prophecy concerning the disciples? We read that earlier in verse 55. The disciples had promised, Oh, we'll never never forsake you, Jesus. And now we see here that their true heart is revealed. So the time has truly come. We see Jesus' growing isolation. His isolation is now complete because verse 56 says, All the disciples left him and fled. So Jesus is going to go off to meet his destiny alone. But yet, we, he's in total control because King Jesus is sovereign. Let me just make a few points of application to end with today. Number one, hopefully this is obvious to you by now, but we need to believe in fulfilled Scripture. We need to believe the Scriptures have been filled, at least some of them, and then those who haven't been fulfilled are one day going to be fulfilled. All the ones about Jesus' first coming, His his death, His sacrifice, were fulfilled in that first coming. There's a lot of Scriptures yet about Jesus' second coming, and we know those one day will also be fulfilled. So each aspect in this particular story here uh, transpires as a fulfillment of prophecy, of Bible prophecy. God has prepared even these negative events, and they're taking place under His sovereign eye. Number two, learn to pray in the midst of trials as Jesus did. 
Look at Jesus' model, if you will, of prayer. Just like Jesus is, by the way, it's not wrong necessary to ask God to stop various trials and afflictions that may be happening in your life. It's not wrong for us to pray for our brothers and sisters who are, who are suffering physically or spiritually or emotionally. But what does Jesus do? He, he ends up sur- surrendering his life to his Father's will. He knows that in the end, this is the Father's will for him to suffer. And so the key to victorious prayer here is exactly what Jesus does. He surrenders and he says, not my will be done, but my Father's will be done. So we must maintain spiritual vigilance and remain alert lest we too enter into temptation. Why do we need that? Jesus said so. Your flesh is weak. You need God. Number three, don't be violent toward your, toward your opposition. Don't be violent toward your opposition. It, it, as Jesus says, it's not going to solve anything. Jesus is very clear in this text, isn't he? There's no place for violence among Christians. The church, uh, over and over again in Scripture, is called to uh, patient endurance. We're called to faithfulness. Not using the sword, but to endure Throughout the history of the church, we, we see this as well, that God has used Christian love to bring about salvation for unbelievers. It's often been said that, that the, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Even today, there's Muslims, uh, these, these radical Muslims who are coming to Christ as a result of our brothers and sisters who have been murdered. I want you to listen to what the man with the sword in our text, remember, Peter? The man with the sword who chopped off the guy's ear. You know what he said later on? Here's what he says. A quote here from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Last of all, hopefully this is obvious from the text believe that King Jesus is sovereign. And by sovereign, we need to understand He's in control of your life. Not just the disciples' lives, not just His own life, not just in things regards to the Father's will, but King Jesus is in control of your body, your DNA, your mind, your family, your spouse, your parents, the, the disasters and the accidents that befall us. King Jesus is in control of all those details. And as we go through life, we we can have confidence and assurance, comfort, knowing that there is someone who is in control. Satan's not in control. We're we're not left to just chance, and so, you know, it's it's not a flip a coin. No, we, we can rely upon a sovereign God who reigns supreme over His creation, knowing that He knows what's going on. Even our future is in His hand, in His control. So we need to trust Him and live like He is in control. May God give us the grace to do that.